And I rushed up to McCarthy on the House floor and I said, Kevin, first of all, if we're having a private conversation, I would have thought it was a private conversation, but if it wasn't, you know, you told the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. We've talked about the threat our democracy is facing since we launched the podcast over a year ago. During the 2020 campaign, we focused on the threats that a second Trump term would mean. And since the election last year, we've discussed the many threats presented by the big lie, the insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th, and the rise of authoritarianism at home and around the world. And I wanted to talk with someone who was and is on the front lines of that fight right now. So today, I'm excited to be speaking with Congressman Adam Schiff, who represents California's 28th district. He's the chair of the House of Representatives Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, a member of the Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol, an ex-officio member of the House Appropriations Committee, and probably most famously, he was a lead House impeachment manager for the first impeachment of Donald Trump. He's also the author of a new book, Midnight in Washington. Adam, thank you for making a bit of time for us today. I know you're very busy, and we should note a special thanks to our mutual friend, Steve Israel, for making the connection. Well, great to be with you, and, uh, and thanks for inviting me on. So you really became a household name starting in about 2017 as the ranking member on the House Intelligence Committee. Can you talk a little bit about what that has been like for you, the increase in attention, particularly from the far right? Well, it's certainly been a challenge. Uh, I had got to have a vivid understanding of what uh, it means to have, you know, the amplification of Fox News and Newsmax and OAN uh, directed against you and to have millions of dollars spent to tear you down. Uh, just the kind of magnitude of that, uh, as well as in this environment, the death threats that come with it. Uh, so personally, it was a challenging time. Uh, at the same time, uh, through it all, uh, to continue to this day, I feel a real sense of mission. Our democracy is in trouble, uh, and what we do right now really matters. And so uh, I don't feel at all sorry for myself uh, being the subject of attacks. Uh, I consider it an indication of doing my job, and I'm determined to do it to the best of my ability. In 2019, you pushed for the whistleblower complaint about the very perfect phone call, I put that in air quotes, uh, to be released to Congress. You led the investigation into the call that resulted in Trump's first impeachment and then served as the lead impeachment manager. I think for many people, they suddenly saw a bunch of headlines on their TVs, but certainly there was a lot of work that led up to that moment. Can you walk us through what that process was like for you? Uh, Sure. Well, the backdrop uh, really was the testimony of Bob Mueller. Um, The day that Donald Trump believed, uh, after watching that testimony, that he had finally escaped the jailer for his Russian misconduct. Uh, And bear in mind, uh, during that Russian misconduct, his own campaign chairman was meeting secretly with an agent of Russian intelligence and providing Russian intelligence internal campaign polling data and strategic insights into their strategy for battleground states while Russian intelligence was uh, leading a hacking and dumping and social media operation designed to elect Donald Trump. 
But when he felt he had escaped accountability for that, um, it was the very next day after Mueller's testimony that we would learn he would be on the phone with another world leader, this time the president of Ukraine, seeking to secure that nation's help to cheat in yet another election. Uh, and what that said to me when I learned about it was that um, the failure to hold him accountable for his Russian misconduct, for all the lies to cover up his campaign's efforts to collude with the Russians, um, led to even worse things. Uh, and uh, and it began by learning that the whistleblower had filed a complaint that was being withheld from Congress in violation of the statute. Uh, and all of our efforts to force the disclosure of that, um, I ended up scheduling an open hearing with the director of national intelligence who was withholding the complaint uh, so that he would have to explain to the whole country why he was the first head of the intelligence community to withhold a complaint from Congress, hoping it would have the forcing effect that it did uh, and prior release of that complaint. Uh, and uh, and then we were really quite dependent on the courage of a woman named Marie Ivanovich uh, to step forward, to be willing to testify, to be willing to, to stand up the most powerful man in the world and tell the truth about uh, his uh, effort to coerce uh, another country to help him cheat in the other, uh, in a new election. Um, and that was really the kind of the origin story of the, the Russia investigation and ultimately his impeachment. So fast forwarding now um, to, to January 6th, you know, because of all of the attention you'd gotten during the Trump administration, you're now probably among the handful of Democrats in Congress who are the most demonized by the right. And, you know, Nancy Pelosi, for example, Speaker Pelosi, uh, Congresswoman Omar, Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez, maybe Congressman Nadler and you. And so during the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, did that go through your mind at all? And what was that day actually like for you? And I should note that our listeners have had the benefit of a firsthand account from a photographer who was actually embedded at the Capitol that day. Um, and she was she was um, following Madison Cawthorn around. And so we've had sort of this inside look at what it was like inside the chamber. And I wonder what that day was like for you. Well, I, I write about this uh, extensively uh, in the book that I just had released, Midnight in Washington. The first chapter is about the insurrection. About six months before um, January 6th, before the election, really, I suggested the speaker that we form a rump group of members to try to anticipate everything that could go wrong uh, on Election Day in the aftermath. What if the Electoral College was tied? What if the state sent two slates of electors? What if the vice president refused to accept the slate of electors? Uh, and so we had been meeting for months in advance of January 6th, in advance of the election, to try to scope out everything that could go wrong. And we came up with about a thousand possibilities, except, of course, the one that happened, a violent attack on the Capitol. But uh, as a result of my suggesting this, the speaker and working in this group, uh, I was asked to be one of a handful of people to lead the opposition on the House floor that day against Republican efforts to decertify the results. Uh, and so I was there for the whole thing. I wasn't in the beginning really paying attention to what was going on down the mall as the crowd was gathering and the former president, now former president, was agitating them into a violent attack. Uh, I was focused on what I was saying on the floor and what the Republicans were saying and how I was going to rebut it. Uh, and the first thing I knew that something was wrong was when I looked up from my notes and saw that the speaker was no longer in her chair. Uh, and very soon thereafter, two Capitol Police rushed onto the House floor 
and grabbed Steny Hoyer, our number two, and whisked him off the floor so fast. I remember thinking to myself, I've never seen Steny move that fast. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, the announcements from the Capitol Police became increasingly dire, that there were rioters in the building, that we needed to take out our gas masks, that we needed to be prepared to get down on the ground. And it wasn't long before uh, the insurrectionists were battering the doors and breaking the windows to get into our chamber. But uh, to, to your point, um, and whether I felt a particular danger, given that I was now one of the most visible opponents of the president and, and one of the most uh, vilified uh, on uh, Fox primetime and, and uh, among their acolytes, two of the Republicans came up to me uh, as it was getting to this crisis point on the floor. And one of them said, you can't let them see you. Uh, and the other said, that's right. Uh, I know these people. I can talk to these people. I can talk my way through these people. You're in a wholly different category. Um, and my first impression was to be kind of moved that they were worried about my safety. But my next impression uh, was, well, you know, if you hadn't been lying about the election or me for that matter for the last several years, I wouldn't need to be worried about my safety. None of us would. Um, and in the days that would follow, that feeling became the more dominant one. That is, I realized that those that were attacking the Capitol and beating police and trying to, to accost uh, or, or uh, attack Speaker uh, or the Vice President, they believed the big lie. But the people inside the chamber, uh, the ones that I've taken to calling the insurrectionists in suits and ties, they understood it was a big lie and that they would continue pushing it even after they saw where it brought this country was just unforgivable. Let's talk a bit more about the prosecution of that day. Um, and our listeners have have heard from Scott McFarlane, who's doing an, a fantastic job covering the DOJ side. And uh, and one of the things I'm sure we both see in the Twitterverse is some frustration that the select committee uh, on the January 6th attack isn't moving faster. Now, we all know Twitter isn't real life. Uh, but 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 it's easy to sympathize with that if you understand that there is a systemic effort underway to subvert trust in the legitimacy of elections and even make it easier to overturn unfavorable results. That's happening across state legislatures as we speak. So how important is it going to be that we have a full and thorough accounting of what went into the attack? How important is it going to be for our immediate future? And not just the future of the republic, but for classical liberal ideas around the globe. Well, it's enormously important uh, that we conduct this investigation, that we do it expeditiously, uh, that we document uh, the, the history of that terrible tragedy, that we write a set of recommendations to prevent it from ever happening again. Uh, and I realize the public frustration that they want this done and they want it done quickly. Uh, The reality is, uh, as you probably know, because you follow this so carefully, we are moving with relative lightning speed for Congress in this committee. Uh, We're only a few months old, and we've already interviewed 150 people. Uh, We've already uh, held someone in criminal contempt and referred them for prosecution, and they're already being prosecuted. Things don't generally move like that in Congress. Uh, Now, nonetheless, the former president and his acolytes are trying to slow us down. They're suing us. Uh, They're doing everything they can to put roadblocks in the way. But we're overcoming them. Uh, And I think the indictment of Steve Bannon sent a powerful message 
to others that the rule of law is back, no one is above the law, uh, that it will be applied neutrally and with force. Uh, for four years during Donald Trump, uh, those that thumb their nose at, uh, at the Congress and it's a power to do oversight, like Steve Bannon, who was subpoenaed by the Republicans during the Russia investigation and refused to answer all but 25 questions that uh, he deigned to respond to, um, they let him get away with it. And when he was indicted for stealing money from Trump's own supporters to build a wall that Mexico was supposed to pay for, uh, but of course was never going to, uh, Donald Trump responded by pardoning him for stealing from his own people. No wonder Steve Bannon felt he was above the law. But, uh, you know, the rule of law is back, uh, and it's so vitally important that it is. You know, one of the terrible epiphanies I reached in the last four years is that the threat to our democracy no longer comes predominantly from without. It comes from within, from people, as you say, who right now are using the big lie to strip independent elections officials of their duties and give them over to partisans and legislatures that will overturn the next presidential election if they lose it. And so people need to understand just how fragile our democracy is right now, but at the same time that, that we all have a role to play in preserving. So you mentioned um, the enemy is within, and that just, it gave me chills because I forced myself to watch the entire two hours of Donald Trump's rally uh, in Alabama, in the middle of nowhere in a field between Huntsville and Birmingham. And um, and I know that this is something that you think about, and I'm sure you're concerned about it, um, but the rhetoric from both sides, and everyone knows this is not a both sides issue, but the rhetoric on the right is now starting to sound a hell of a lot like the protecting democracy rhetoric that the rest of us are engaged in. And you see this now in the apparent mythologizing of the insurrection. For example, you know, Donald Trump calling into a rally where organizers pledged allegiance to a flag that was flown at the insurrection. Um, at that rally that I was talking about in, in Alabama, uh, he ends his, he ends his, his speech almost as, as remarks as prepared, um, uh, with the enemy is, is here. It's, it's being destroyed from the inside out. The enemy is within and he's all the time he's fighting for America. Right. And so I wonder, first of all, how you see this trend, because it seems to me particularly pernicious, even in spite of the fact that the rule of law is back and is working and, 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 and people like you are making it work. What do we do with that trend? And, um, and, you know, just as a, as a follow-up, what do you think about the potential for someone like Steve Bannon, uh, to, to take on the aura of a martyr if he is forced to testify before the committee? Well, first of all, I think you're absolutely right at the tactics that uh, Trump, uh, and his, uh, enablers and amplifiers use, which is kind of a gaslighting of America. Uh, of all the destructive things of the, the Trump administration, among the most deleterious was this constant assault on the truth, uh, this constant turning back uh, their own misconduct and accusing others of it. Um, Donald Trump lies all the time, so he accuses everyone else of being a liar. Donald Trump is you know, fundamentally and pervasively corrupt. So he accuses everyone of corruption. Donald Trump wants to be an autocrat. Uh, Tucker Carlson is their thought leader, and he is extolling the, the model of Viktor Orban. But to deflect, 
they call Speaker Pelosi an authoritarian. Um, it is a part of the, the gaslighting of America. It's what they do. Uh, and the, the, the antidote to that is nothing but the truth relentlessly pursued, uh, relentlessly explained. Uh, and there's no other alternative. But you're right. Uh, it is enormously destructive. And, and I think that part of the reason why Donald Trump has been able to get away with it is that unlike Richard Nixon, who engaged in, frankly, lesser misconduct, uh, Richard Nixon didn't have Fox News to amplify his falsehoods. Uh, he didn't have Newsmax and OAN to give his followers an alternate world to live in, uh, in which they're not the autocrats, the, the others are. Uh, they're the, somehow the truth tellers. Uh, and, uh, and this is among the greatest challenges that we face. Uh, is this um, attack on our shared experience. Uh, and we're going to have to figure it out. Uh, this goes beyond uh, Donald Trump to a, a challenge facing free societies all over the globe in the era of social media. Uh, in terms of Steve Bannon, uh, Steve Bannon uh, certainly wants to make himself a martyr. Uh, he was on the outs once with Donald Trump. He was a man without a country when he spoke all too candidly with the author of Fire and Fury. Uh, and he doesn't want to be an island again. And so he's willing to completely debase himself, the truth, the country, um, whatever he can do to stay in Donald Trump's good graces. Uh, and, you know, look, they're a supreme group of grifters. Uh, you have to be really good grifters to run on a campaign that uh, Mexico is going to pay for a wall, allow your people to steal money uh, from your supporters and then pardon them. Uh, and uh, and still um, enjoy the support of those people who were ripped off, uh, but that's what they are. They're grifters. Yeah. yeah. Um, like a lot of other autocrats, they're all in it for the money and the power and the prestige. They care nothing about the country. I wonder if one of the things that makes that grifting possible, or even let's go back to the gaslighting, that makes that gaslighting possible is. Um, is this pernicious idea of American exceptionalism, which I've talked with Ann Applebaum a lot uh, about. And, and it's this idea that it can't happen here, right? Americans have this sort of, many Americans have this idea that um, it's, it's a false sense of security, right? That we're insulated from the kinds of things that happen in despotic regimes. And um, and and one of the things that I I worry about is how, abstracted our language can become uh, when we describe authoritarianism, when we describe, uh, you know, attacks on the rule of law and democracy. A lot of these things, I think to many people, the reason, the reason both sides are, you know, Trump is able to weaponize the same words is because they've lost their meaning for a lot of people. And I wonder if you think about that and what might be an antidote to that, to bring the threat out of high-minded language and into the, the real, the physicality of the threats that we're facing. Well, I think we do need to be concrete about it. What does it look like uh, to say that our democracy is hanging by a thread? Um, and, you know, and I think showing people just what's happening and why uh, our democracy is so at risk why the assumptions we've been making, and you're right, we've been making assumptions that couldn't happen here, turn out not to be valid assumptions. It can happen here. Indeed, it is happening here. Uh, when you talk to people who come from uh, countries in which their democracy fell, they will tell you they see all this, the telltale signs here uh, and that we need to pay attention to them. 
But um, consider this scenario. You can see how fragile our democracy is. In the last presidential election, uh, the elections were conducted in a free and fair manner in which a, an enormous number of Americans participated. That should have been something to applaud. Um, but uh, the, the former president, unable to accept his loss, uh, and the Republican Party leadership, unable to divorce themselves from this unethical man, have propagated a big lie about our election, which now has millions of Americans questioning whether they can rely on elections to decide who should govern. Uh, and if that's the case, then what is left but violence? Uh, and the, the claims that they made in the last election were completely frivolous. Uh, the litigation they did around the country was a joke, uh, led by people with hair dye running down their face or standing out in front of a landscaping uh, agency uh, alongside sex offenders, making completely bogus uh, claims. They were a bunch of clowns. But let's say it comes down to a single state next time. Um, and, and let's say that uh, it's no longer frivolous anymore, but could decide the direction of the country. And let's say this time um, that uh, the, the Speaker of the House is Kevin McCarthy and he decides he will overturn the election. He will not accept the loss. Um, where do we end up then? But in a complete crisis for which there is no easy answer. Uh, and so I think getting very specific um, is, is important to helping people understand what we mean when we say our democracy is hanging by a thread. I think that was a great way to do it. I think you just did it. And that's not an unrealistic scenario at all. Um, I, wish, I wish it were. Yeah. I really wish it were. Um, there are lots of other illustrations, sure. of course, yeah. um, uh, of how the uh, former president used this office to enrich himself, how he used to hold political conventions on the White House ground, how he punished inspector generals and whistleblowers, how he weaponized the Justice Department. These are all manifestations of an attack on our democracy. Um, but the attack on our vote, on the right to vote, uh, is the most debilitating because the, the right to vote is foundational. If the right to vote is eviscerated, then the whole edifice comes down. I want to be uh, sort of mindful of the time here and uh, and ask you a little bit about the book and why you decided to write it. And maybe you can share one of your favorite anecdotes. Well, I decided to write it uh, because um, there was a lot written about what happened in the Trump White House, but very little that had been written about what was happening in Congress over the last four years. And without those in Congress and the Republican leadership willing to enable Donald Trump, there's no way he could have done any of the things he did to tear down our dem democratic institutions. Uh, and what I witnessed um, was the slow but steady uh, resignation, surrender of people's morality, their ideology, everything they stood for in the service of this deeply unethical man. Uh, and I wanted to explain how that happens, what that looks like. Because these were people that I worked with and respected and admired because I believed that they believed what they were saying. Uh, and as it turned out, uh, no, they didn't believe it at all, or it didn't matter as much as holding power. And I, I, I give, I'll tell you one story I tell in the book of um, actually it long predates Trump, but it was a it was a foreshadowing of things to come in the Republican leadership. Uh, a plane ride I had with Kevin McCarthy back in 2010. We were seated next to each other on United Airlines just by happenstance. Um, and we were making idle conversation about the midterms, which were still six months away and who was 
was going to win the midterms. And I said the Democrats were going to win. And not surprisingly, he said the Republicans were going to win. And it was a total nothing of a conversation. Uh, and we land in Washington. We go our separate ways. And McCarthy goes off and does a briefing for the press. And he tells the press that Republicans are going to win the midterms. And everybody knows it. That he sat, sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane. And then even Adam Schiff admitted Republicans were going to win the midterms. And this didn't come out until the morning. Uh, and I read this and I was incredulous. Um, and I rushed up to McCarthy on the House floor and I said, Kevin, first of all, if we're having a private conversation, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know, you told the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. And I said, no, Kevin, I don't know how it goes. You just make expletive up and that's how you operate because that's not how I operate. But it is how he operates. Uh, and in that sense, McCarthy was really made for a moment like this when the leader of his party, Donald Trump, um, cares nothing about the truth, is willing to, to lie, do whatever is necessary to keep power or obtain power. And uh, someone like that, uh, like Kevin McCarthy, can never be allowed to go near the speaker's office. Um, and, and, and I think in a very real sense, democracy is on the ballot in the midterms and then most certainly two years later. Um, and, uh, and all of us have a role to play. I, I titled the book Midnight in Washington, um, both because it was the, the title, the summation I gave uh, in the first impeachment trial, but also because midnight is the darkest hour of every day. But it's also a time of hope because we know that what follows is light and we will get through this. Um, there are millions and millions more Americans who would care passionately, deeply about our democracy and cherish our legacy. And they are far more numerous than those right now who are trying to tear it down. Here, here. Speaking of hope from where you're sitting now, what do you see as the path forward? Um, what do we as a country need to do to right that ship? And if I could make the question a little bit more difficult, if there were only one thing that we could get done that would have the highest ROI in your view in terms of protecting against the rise of authoritarianism in America, what would that be? I would say passage of the voting rights legislation, HR1, as well as the John Lewis bill. Um, but simultaneous with that, because we can't put everything in that basket, uh, we need to be embarking on a Stacey Abrams-like effort in every state uh, to ensure that people can vote, uh, that they can overcome any hurdle put in their way, uh, and that there's a relationship with voters uh, so that they do turn out. Um, I think that's, that's priority number one. Now, the economic agenda, the rescue plan that we passed, the infrastructure bill that we passed, and the Build Back Better bill that we will pass are also key parts of a democracy agenda. Because at the end of the day, a democracy has to show that it can deliver. Um, but uh, still, I think more fundamental is the right to vote. Uh, so to the degree that the people who are listening can plug themselves into efforts, some online, some in the real, uh, to help secure the vote, to push back against efforts to intimidate elections officials, to run them out of town, uh, who can fight back against efforts to disenfranchise people of color. Um, those are things that we can all be a part of, uh, and, and we will really need to be. One last question before we let you go. And this is, uh, 
one that comes up a lot uh, directly from our listeners because one of the things we do most is encourage them to get as involved as they can at the state and the local level, right, in their communities. Um, that they don't have to run for federal office, but they can run for something even even close to home. And one of the problems we're seeing in the current political climate is that more and more candidates are the type of people who are in it for themselves. And a lot of the types of people who we want running for Congress uh, or any office really are people who've seen problems in their communities and want to contribute to fixing them. And they won't run because of the enormous personal cost which of course extends far beyond just you know scrutiny of skills and capabilities it's it's negative vicious attention it's you know the threats the constant barrage of hate mail uh as someone who's actually gone through all of that and still does i'm sure and is working to protect democracy and the rule of law what do you say to the people out there who are saying you know there are real problems here and I think I have the skills to actually make a difference, to contribute. But they're worried about the rising cost of, of getting involved and about the potential blowback. I would say that we need you. Uh, we need you. Um, one of the things that I discovered uh, through the impeachment process, <clears throat> the impeachment process, is that there's no flaw in the remedy of impeachment. Uh, I don't suggest that we make it a majority vote and turn the Congress into a kind of parliament. Um, the problem is that unless people give their oath of office meaning, uh, unless they're willing to um, give uh, content to that oath and view it through the prism of right and wrong uh, and willing to accept the truth, none of it works. And those are issues of character. Um, we have seen power reveal some of the people I, I serve with to be of great character, uh, to be courageous. Um, Liz Cheney is showing great courage right now, as is Adam Kinzinger. Um, others are showing the most craven uh, desire for power. When Liz Cheney said that she would not carry a big lie, even if it meant her position in House leadership, Lee Stefanik raised her hand and said, well, then I will. Um, I'll carry any lie you need me to carry. Um, ultimately, we're only as good as the people that we elect to represent us. Uh, our democracy is only that strong. And so we need good people. And the good news is that um, we've had some of the best people running for office in our country's history. We've had a few of the worst, uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gateses, but we've had some extraordinary people, the Abigail Spanbergers and Elaine Lurias, the, uh, the Andy Kims and Tom Malinowskis and Mike Levins. Uh, they're all over the country. Um, many of them who ran in 2018 and 2020 veterans of the armed forces, the State Department, the intelligence community, in the same way that after 9-11, people joined the service to protect our country. After Donald Trump was elected and started tearing our country down, people decided they needed to run for office as a different way to serve. Um, so we need you. It's not easy. I, I grant you that. Um, but um, it's also deeply fulfilling uh, to play a role in the protection of our democracy when it's deeply at risk. So I would strongly encourage you to, to do so at the local, state, or national level, um, and, uh, and wish you every success. Congressman, you are a hero to many, myself included. Thank you for making the time for us today. Thank you. Great to be with you. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. 
podcasts tend to grow based on word of mouth. So if you want to help more people discover politicology, you can share this episode or one of your favorites with your friend group, your family, or your colleagues. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we'd love to hear from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.